Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, it is Thursday, May 26th. This is the podcast version of Q, the CBC radio show. Welcome to the show. My name is Tom Power. Uh, I'm excited for you to hear the show today. You're going to hear my conversation with Lenny Kravitz. It's his 58th birthday today. We spoke to him from a beach uh, a little while ago on the occasion of his latest memoir. I was in the studio, by the way. He was on a beach. And we had a conversation. Uh, We only had a little bit of time with him. I think we only had about 20 minutes with him. So we spent the time listening to some of the music that has made him who he is today. And oh, Over the course of that conversation, what ends up coming out is how he struggled. This is like the most coolest, confident guy in the world, how he struggled with confidence throughout his entire life and how he got through it. Lenny Kravitz and the music that made him is uh, coming up. After that, Tyler Mitchell, at 23 years old, becomes the first black photographer to shoot the cover of Vogue magazine, and he shoots Beyonce for his first cover. He tells the story of how that happened, his story of going from filming uh, his fellow skateboarders in Atlanta to becoming one of the most respected photographers of our time. And then finally, a re-airing, an encore presentation of one of our favorite conversations of all time with the great Margaret Atwood. Show starts now. Hey, what's going on? This is Boots Riley. Yo, what's up? This your homeboy, Ice Cube. Hello, I'm Robbie Robertson, and you're listening to Q. And the homie, Tom Power. With Tom Power. If you've ever watched Lenny Kravitz playing jams like Are You Gonna Go My Way or Always on the Run, this is a guy that just oozes confidence. The kind of confidence that comes from being a platinum-selling, Grammy-winning, guitar-slinging rock star. And Lenny Kravitz will tell you about his long journey to get that confidence and why at one point he even briefly changed his name. That's coming up. Plus, one photo shoot changed everything for Tyler Mitchell. Five years ago, he became the first black photographer to shoot the cover of Vogue magazine. Tyler will tell you what that did for his career and why it's so important for him to show black folks in moments of leisure. All that and so much more coming up on Q. Hi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for uh, tuning in. We got a pretty, pretty fun show for you today. You picked a good one. I think if you got to go to work today, just take the day off, take a listen, and we'll start with this. I tell you something, if you want to learn how to play the guitar, like if you want to learn one song that's like, okay, I can I can play one thing to impress people at a party or like my, my boss's house or something like that. Relatively easy song to learn. You can learn it in like 10 seconds. It's, it's a good like smoke on the water level first song to learn on guitar. It is Lenny Kravitz and Fly Away from 1998 from his brilliant album Five. Lenny won his first two Grammys for both the song and the album. It was a big year for him, and today is a big day for Lenny. Lenny Kravitz turns 58 years old today, which put us in mind of a conversation we had with Lenny Kravitz uh, a little while back. It was about his memoir, Let Love Rule. And we talked about some of the songs and moments that made him who he is today. And I, it was early in the pandemic, and I spoke to him from a beach through his phone over FaceTime. 
It was really cool. We started with this. I mean, strong candidate for greatest baseline of all time. That is the Jackson 5, and I want you back. You say that they were life-changing for you. What is, but where does hearing that song take you? I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. It's amazing hearing this through the little speaker on the phone. It still explodes. You know, the Jackson 5, first of all, the music was absolutely unbelievable. We're talking about Motown, Barry Gordy, the best writers, the best producers, the best studio musicians. Uh, and arrangers, and uh, then you had the talent of this alien man. I don't know what to call him. He, he was from another planet, and I identified with it, with the sound, and also with the visuals because they looked like me. I, I could I could see myself in them. You know, we had the same hair, we had this basically the same skin tones, and you know. There was five of them and it was it was just and their stage performance was impeccable you know their choreography their moves i mean the whole thing it was like it was it was the same level as, as seeing the beatles you know different thing but that same vibe and your dad and, your dad uh, took you to the show right your dad took you to yeah, see my them? dad that was my very first concert uh i was six years old i was in the first grade and my father picked me up from school and we went to Madison Square Garden. I had no idea uh, who we were going to see. He didn't tell me. Hmm. And my mind was blown when they came out on the stage. It, nothing was the same after that. The next day, you know, I was uh, putting on my, my uh, knee-high rubber galoshes, pretending they were like the funky boots they were wearing. And I would <laughs> go in my mom's closet and get scarves and things and, you know, pretend that I was... Uh, in the Jackson Five, it's it's an amazing story, and I love any story of like a, a a piece of art or you know a song or a concert. Literally having the ability to to change our lives, and I think mm-hmm. you know going through this book, I just see you sort of grapple with different parts of your life. I mean, you grew up in New York City to interracial parents. Your mom, Roxy Roker, was black, American, and Bahamian. Tony nominated stage and TV actor. Your father, Cy Kravitz, was white and Jewish of. Russian descent. He was a news producer for NBC and went on to pursue a bunch of stuff. But how did your parents talk to you about your identity growing up and what impact did that have on you? You know, being in this uh, biracial situation, I I didn't think anything of it. There was no weirdness about race or anywhere around our circle. I knew that my mother looked how she looked and had darker skin and my father had lighter skin. But I didn't think anything of it because, you know, I have the family on both sides. So I have both sets of grandparents, both sets of aunts and uncles and cousins and so forth. So everybody's black and white. And uh, on top of that, my parents were artists and, you know, hung with a very bohemian crowd in New York City in the late 60s and early 70s. So our house was full of everybody coming from every background so you grow up like this you accept it if nobody tells you there's a problem with it you know yeah there isn't one and um i mean all of this is learned right all of this racism so not until i went to first grade and my parents walked me to school together Mm -hmm. uh 
did this kid uh, who took notice of us because my parents, I guess, were the only ones that didn't match that morning walking into the school. And he said, he jumped out in front of us and said, pointed his finger and said, your mother's black and your father's white. And I didn't have any idea what that was about. So then my mother spoke to me later and said, you know, I want you to understand who you are. And I want you to understand that you are, you know, you are both of us. Your father is, uh, you know, a Russian Jewish man, you know, and uh, he's got light skin. I am African-American Caribbean. I have darker skin, mm -hmm. you know, we're Christian. And uh, I want you to know both sides of your culture and I want you to embrace both sides of your culture. But then she said, understand this, society is only going to see you as black. Mm -hmm. And that took a little, it took a minute to understand, but I, I finally, you know, understood what she meant. And, you know, I've always identified as a, as a, as a, as a black person, but I, uh, I'm very proud of both sides of my heritage. Mm -hmm. And it, it was a very wonderful and rich way to grow up um, in the middle of all this, because it taught me that we're all the same. And it, it taught me that racism is absolutely ridiculous. Is, 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 is learned. Yeah. Is, is, is something you, yeah. don't, you don't find out until you're, until you're older. Um, right. I'm excited to listen to some more music with you. Uh, take a listen to this. All right. Can I say one of the joys of my life is watching you groove along to Golden Lady by Stevie Wonder through Dude, your phone that, speaker? That track. Oh my god. It's it's un, mean, it's unreal. Stevie Wonder, I should say, from 73 off Inner Visions. You call it an, a revelation when it came to the craft of arrangement. Why did it teach you, Lenny Kravitz? What did that song what did that record I, teach you? I, that really was the first time where on that level I took note of all the parts. I mean, I did with other music. I, you know, I'd hear the strings and the thing, and, but I studied this. I found the album to be fascinating and deeply spiritual. Now, what did I know about deeply spiritual at that age? But I felt, I felt something yeah. inside of me, in my spirit. I, I, I knew it. I knew it. And um, I always say that inner vision sounds to me like Stevie was sitting in the palm of, of God's hand when he made that record, that God was just holding him and he was sitting there and creating all of this. That's the visual I, I've always had. And uh, so we had a turntable in our apartment and uh, I used to put that record on and just listen to it and listen to it and beat out the drums and listen to the, you know, the moog and you know the pianos and the bass and the, all the orchestrations and it gave me great education that I can, album i can hear it you know as a fan of your music i can i can really hear it
Um, I want to play another clip now. This is not a song. I'll say that. Okay. Honey, did you know that it is possible to have a lot of money and still enjoy life? <laughs> well, honey, I had a lifetime of being poor. Take shopping. All of my life, I've only bought three kinds of dresses. 50% off, seconds, and going out of business. <laughs> You'll get used to it, Louise. All you've got to do is learn three little words. I'll take it. <laughs> That's your mom. That's the late Roxy yep. Roker in the very, the very first episode of The Jeffersons. She played Helen Willis on that show, one half of the very first interracial couple on primetime TV. So I'm going to ask you the same thing I asked about Stevie and about the Jackson 5. What goes through your mind when you hear that? Man, I, I remember all those lines. <laughs> I was there for most of those tapings as a kid. Really? Um, yeah, yeah I, used to, I used to go... From school, I'd take the bus to the studios and go in my mom's dressing room and do my homework, and then I'd hang out. Um, and that whole cast, you know, became like family. Uh, you know, I used to hang out with all of them, became friends with the kids of, you know. And, uh, but that show changed our lives. I mean, my mother was on Broadway in a play called The River Niger, and uh, Norman Lear, the creator of the Jeffersons uh, came to see the play, saw my mother and and went backstage to meet her and told her that he thought she'd be perfect for this part. They were doing a spinoff uh, from All in the Family. And so uh, she went out to L.A., auditioned and got the part. And uh, we moved to L.A. I, I love in the book, you sort of talk about how your own story sort of mirrored the Jeffersons, you know. I mean, that was odd. I mean, here my mother was portraying her situation. Uh, you know, in the show, she's she's married to a white man. And so it's just very interesting that my mother was chosen to... Norman Lear had no idea. After the audition, he sat with her and said, now listen, I want to make sure that you're going to be comfortable because you're going to be playing the wife of a white man and you're going to have to, you know, be close with him. You're going to have to kiss him. You're going to have, you know, I don't know how you feel about that. And my mother just laughed and took out her purse and showed her him a picture of my father. <laughs> but you were also and like, was, but you were also literally moving on up too. Like, you know, well, if you think about thing. it, you know, we were, so we were, we were moving on up at the same time, you know, not, to, we were leaving the East side, <laughs> we were going to the East side, we were going to the West coast, but yeah, it, it was very odd, you know? And as a kid, I'm, I'm watching this show that, you know, where they're, they're making pretend that they're in New York, you know, I'm wishing that we're back in New York city. I remember being on the set and looking, you know, they had those uh, paintings out of the window that would look like other buildings, you know, and they looked very realistic. And I used to look at those and I used to wish I was back in New York. I, I, I didn't want to be in L.A., mm. but um, I ended up liking it and it ended up being another, you know, vital part of my education. I want to play another song. Take a listen to this. Led Zeppelin and Black Dog, a song I've never been able to figure out how they counted. Um, what impact did that song have on you? Tell me that story. I'm getting a contact by just listening to it. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, that was the first time I got stoned. 
I was 11. Wow. Uh, That's young. Yeah. And uh, we were at school. It was lunchtime. We left the school, which we weren't supposed to do. Hopped the fence, went across the street to this church that nobody nobody was there on the property because it was a weekday. And uh, we went in the backyard of this church and my friend had a boom box and a joint and he lit the joint and he pressed play and I'm, I'm trying to smoke this thing. I don't really know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, he's telling me to hold it in <laughs> and I take a few hits and right in the middle of that riff, man, I took off. I went somewhere I'd never been before. A portal opened, and uh, that was it. If you're just joining us, my name is Tom Power, and you're listening to Q. My guest today is four-time Grammy Award-winning singer and songwriter Lenny Kravitz. He's got a new memoir out. It's called Let Love Rule. We've been talking about Lenny's early musical influences when he was a kid in New York City, and then he made a move to L.A. I built this garden for us. I built this garden for us. In this garden, this lovely garden, I built a temple. That's a bit of I Built This Garden for Us, a song you wrote about your relationship with Lisa Bonet on your album, Let Love Rule. So what changed for you then? How does that lead to the story of Lenny Kravitz, meeting Lisa? Well, at the time we met, I was searching for my expression, for my sound, for my voice. And uh, I've been doing all kinds of things, playing with other bands, doing other projects, producing people's demos, you know, whatever I could do to be playing music. But I hadn't found my thing. And I, and in some respects, I would have been fine playing behind somebody else, you know, being the guitar player or the bass player or the drummer or whatever I would have had to do, a keyboard player to be, to be in the group. But I knew that there was something I wanted to do, but I just didn't know what it was. And when we met, because of our relationship, because of the, the, the magic that was being created around us, um, starting with our love um, and the group of people that we were surrounding ourselves with, um, really helped me to open up. And um, I had just moved, we had just moved in together. I'd moved in with her uh, at her house and uh, put all my instruments in a room and uh, one day it just came to me. Like I started to hear the music. That was one of the first ones written. I think Fear was the first one. Mm. And then uh, Rosemary and I Build This Garden for Us were the first three. But uh, I just heard it and I accepted it. Um, I don't know if it's what I thought I was looking for, mm -hmm. but it's what I was given and I grabbed it. And um, that was... That was the beginning for me. So that's another time so where a portal opened. 
you know. So this is again like, and we have one minute left here, and you've been generous with your time. But these are the these are the moments, these are the clips, and these are the songs, and these are the stories that make up Lenny Kravitz. But you know. None of this was easy. You had you had pressure from from folks to be a certain way. You had you had pressure from folks to make certain kinds of music based on mm-hmm. how you looked and what you were supposed to be. You turned down music deals that would have seen you change your style of music. Uh, in, instead, you were couch surfing. But looking back, after writing this book, where do you think that confidence to be yourself, to say no to things that weren't you, comes from? You know, to this day, it's really hard to just to, to understand and describe what it felt like because. Here I am living in a car or living on somebody's floor or whatever it was, couch, and I'm being offered these deals from, you know, major labels who are telling me that they want me to change my style, first of all. Um, And uh, I'm turning them down and everybody's looking at me like I'm crazy. I don't know how I had the strength to do that. I hadn't even found my sound yet. This This is prior to what we just discussed. So, but I knew that what they wanted me to do was not me and that they were trying to change me. And there was a feeling inside of me that I felt like when it came time to sign the paper, I physically felt ill. I felt off. I felt wrong. And I I just kept saying, I can't do it. You know, you guys aren't going to let me do what I even thought I wanted to do then. And, uh, Mm. you know, so I just... It was something inside of me that spoke to me. L- Lenny, I can't thank you enough for your time. It's, it's such a powerful book about the importance of staying true to yourself, and I'm happy we mm. were able to look at where that self came from. Thank you so much. This means the world to us. Take care. Thank you so much. You take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Here we are, still together. We are so much time. Yeah, absolutely jam of jams. Though, you know, I, I, there's a regular fight with me and my buddies, uh, and I'd love to hear what you think about this. What is the best Lenny Kravitz song of all time? I say it's It Ain't Over Till It's Over. Uh, a lot of my friends say it's that song again. You know that song? I wonder if I'll ever see you again. You know that song? I'll, I'll stop singing. Anyway, let me know what you think uh, on Twitter at CBC Radio Q. That is Lenny Kravitz with It Ain't Over Till It's Over from 1991. Before that, you heard my conversation with Lenny, who turns an inconceivable 58 years old today. And if you want to know what I mean by inconceivable, Google Lenny Kravitz. Always, always be in love. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. So when Tyler Mitchell was growing up in the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia, he spent a lot of time skateboarding with his buddies. And while he was doing that, he was also making skateboarding videos. 
but not just any skateboarding videos. His videos were so good, they got him into New York University's prestigious film school. And then he gets another big break when he's just 23 years old. Vogue magazine asks him to shoot Beyonce for its September issue cover. He says, yeah, of course. Tyler Mitchell becomes the first black photographer to ever land an image on the cover of American Vogue. And he becomes known for his work that portrays the beauty, joy, and self-assurance of black people at leisure. And that's true whether he's on a commercial shoot or creating images to hang in a gallery. His first published collection is called I Can Make You Feel Good. If you're in Toronto, you can see some of his images on display on billboards around town as part of the Contact Photography Festival. Tyler and I caught up when he was back home in New York. How are you? Hey, I'm good. I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. I'm glad. I'm glad we finally get a chance to talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we missed each other in Toronto, but I'm glad that this is now how we can do this. Yeah, me too. Uh, I was out for a walk yesterday, you know, uh, getting ready for this interview. And uh, I I got a cup of coffee and I walked down the street and there I saw your photographs, like blown up on the side of the road in Toronto on, on King Street. Yeah. What is that like for you when you see your work kind of blown up on that massive scale? Yeah, I think this... I mean, this exhibition and this uh, sort of project with Contact has been my first time ever showing in Canada. It's also my first time showing um, publicly, you know, sort of doing a public installation oriented uh, exhibition. I also am doing a gallery show there, but the public works were extremely mind blowing for me to see in person when I went to Toronto because I just hadn't seen the work at that scale sort of sitting in a in a city environment. And I saw several people kind of walking by and engaging, like really taking time to look. So I really liked the power and weight that it held on that block in the financial district. Is, is there a photo, is there one of the pieces that when it's blown up to that scale is particularly meaningful to you or means something different to you? They're all really nice. I worked with the curator, Mark Seeley, who's the executive director yeah. of Autograph Gallery. Yeah. In London. And he really had a specific, we both came to an order or sort of a selection of images that we loved, but he really spearheaded that. And once I saw it in person, the particular image that struck me was um, the first portrait on the left, which is a portrait of a young boy with very, very darkened skin and a brooch that's sort of a pink English rose um, in a sort of ivory coat. And just the power of his gaze um, out onto the street for me does something, you know? Yeah. I, I want to, I want to play some music. Yeah. Okay, take a listen to this. Tyler Mitchell, who's that? Shalimar. Shalimar? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Shalimar, soul singer. <laughs> I, I love that song, by the way, and I was so happy to hear it because I heard people, um, I, I heard people talk about your your um, first solo show. Um, I could make you feel good, and I would I would watch people ask you the question, and they would go, "And why did you name it then? Why do you want <laughs> Why do you want me to feel good?" And you'd be like, "Well, it's, it's a song. It's a song by Shalimar." Yeah, exactly. But I think there's meaning there. I think there's meaning that you chose that title and that song. I can make you feel good for the name of your first solo show. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was three years ago now, but I really did like it. Um, <laughs> I, heard the, I heard the song in an airport and thought, you know, oh, that would be, you know, 
I, I don't know. I was on my way to Amsterdam to think about what I was going to do for a solo exhibition and really was drawn to it. That was it, really. <laughs> like it could have been anything. Had you heard Bohemian Rhapsody, you would have called it Bohemian Rhapsody? No, of course. That's what I, I was having a reaction in that moment to what I think my work was doing. It was sort of this gesture at optimism, I suppose, you know. But no, it was for, it was just resonating while I was thinking about the idea of doing a show. And I was like, okay, that 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 should be it then, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the gesture towards optimism. I really like that. You know, one of, one of the photos in this collection is called Riverside Scene. And uh, I'll embarrassingly try to describe it on the radio, but it's a, it's a sunny afternoon with black folks reclining on a picnic blanket in long grass. And some are sitting underneath a big tree. There's a few kids about to wade into the river. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about that piece? Yeah. So, uh, you know, last year, I basically over several trips back to Atlanta, Georgia, where I'm from, after basically not being able to go there for, you know, a very long time, like all of us who couldn't travel, um, I really became fixated on the I, the power of, you know, photographing families interacting with one another in pastoral Southern Georgia, you know, scenes. And so I have a few friends who I asked if I could photograph their families. So what you're seeing there is definitely a staged image of, you know, friends and families coming together and interacting, enjoying moments of leisure, right, by a riverside. But for me, that was sort of a recreation of certain patched together memories of my own upbringing in Georgia and an insistence on like how, you know, Black folks in America, you know, do and can and should reclaim, you know, land and landscapes. So, yeah. Can you talk to me more about that? Because I've heard you talk about how um, photographing Black people at leisure is a radical act. Yeah. I mean, for me, it is like, I really enjoy that the fact that photographs, you know, a body of photographs can create a world in which you can kind of get lost into. Like for me, these worlds are both worlds I've lived and ones I want to see, right? Like I want to sort of propose a future in which um, black folks feel comfortable, confident and uh, confident and comfortable within themselves to inhabit public space, right? Because we're sitting against a backdrop of a country in which we're told that cannot happen. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So these photographs are an insistence towards the the opposite. What's been a reaction to those photographs that's been meaningful to you? So many. I mean, there were so many amazing positive reactions um, from people old and young when my book was published in 2020 of the same title. I can make you feel good. But the 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 response in person to the exhibitions, you know, even when I was in Toronto, um, the conversations that were brought about with students that were brought about with young people, a lot of people who I think, you know, maybe haven't felt as welcomed in, in museum spaces or gallery spaces really uh, was encouraging for me, you know, that they saw themselves or felt or were transported back to a moment um, of, of bliss, you know, through the photographs. It's really nice. Well, what about you from like a creation standpoint? Like when did you, when did you first pick up a camera? Um, wow. I must have been 14 or 15 when I first picked up a camera to, to actually think about making, I guess, quote unquote, you know, artistic images. I mean, I'm sure before that, I, I think my aunt gave me a camera very early on just to take little tourist photos or snapshots. With, but yeah, I was a skateboarder at around 14 and 15. And there's a real art form around filming the sport of skating. And a friend had a DSLR camera that I asked if I could borrow all the time. And I just became obsessed. What, why, what, what, what did you like about it? What, what caused you to become obsessed with it? Well, there's a whole thing about perspective you bring specifically in skating, which was the realm I was mainly in then. Right. I, I hadn't been exposed to, you know, fine art or fashion 
at all, certainly. But it, within skating at that time, I was just obsessed with the fact that you could bring a perspective to the sport. So like different filmers had different styles of how they shot the sport and different editors would make different montages that would really speak to the style of the skater. So I guess it was a style thing where I was really particularly obsessed with style, um, style in the image, style in the editing, style in the filmmaking and of the filmmaker to bring an eye to what's happening. Did you realize you had a knack for it right away? No, maybe. I don't know. I don't think I was worried about a knack for it. I just liked it. You know, I don't know if I just thought, oh, I'm really good at this. I just thought I really enjoy this, you know? Yeah, I guess there is that, that that's such a beautiful, pure place to be in, you know, before, yeah. before it gets to, yeah, because you're good at this. You have a knack for it. it comes with, you should do something with it. That sort of pressure, you know? Right. Yeah, it really felt more like, oh, well, maybe I could go to film school just so that I don't have to go to other school, you know, <laughs> like, I was like, it would be nice to try and be a filmmaker if that works out, you know. Did, did, does the Atlanta skateboarding stuff show up in your work now, you think? Um, you know, a little bit in the way that I am, you know, orchestrating and coordinating and directing sort of outdoor scenes that are sometimes active, you know, whether it's a boy flying a kite or, you know, it is very directed in a way. Um, and you could probably make some links, but it's definitely evolved as well, you know, into thinking more about identity into thinking about personhood. There's sort of a social element to it. Right. So it's, it's a bit of both. Yes and no. Do you still skateboard? No, I've given that up now. <laughs> I sort of moved to New York and and um, still do sometimes in the summer and really enjoy it. But I think formally in that way that I was doing it in Atlanta, no, I left the sort of community. My guest is Tyler Mitchell, one of the most sought after and groundbreaking photographers of his generation. His work is on display right now at the Contact Photography Festival in Toronto. So just about everything I read or watched about you, um, and we just did it too, actually, just then when we introduced you, describes you as the first black photographer in the 128-year history of Vogue magazine to have an image on its cover. You know, I think even saying that is reminiscent of something that the Canadian songwriter Mustafa said recently at the Juno Awards, like our Grammys. He said, Said, at this point, the first should be a critique, not a compliment. But that being said, it's a pretty amazing story. You I mean you did it when you were 23 years old? Uh, how did how did that come about? Yeah, totally. I mean, um, I'm very proud to have been asked to do the assignment, you know, and everything else that comes um, with that is sort of everything else outside yeah. of my control. But I'm very proud to have been asked, and um, I, I'm very proud of the work I created with that opportunity. You know, um, I was called. I was doing several assignments that were spanning across. I was photographing a few musicians. Um, for Teen Vogue, I was commissioned to photograph the um, uh, sort of um, gun reform activists, which is still a conversation in our country, um, who were survivors of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Parkland shootings. And so I think people knew me as both someone who's interested in style, but also someone who's interested in politics and the political moment. And so uh, I got the call to do the Beyonce cover and assignment for Vogue. And it, it felt very right for the intersection of my interests, but also it felt very right what I thought I could bring to the assignment uh, from a point of view sort of perspective. What did you want to bring? I think just a sort of a new proposal of a new sort of fashion image or, and also a new proposal of how she could look, right? Because I think it was a very gorgeous sort of familial sort of way of seeing her. You felt that you knew her, you felt that there was a real comfort 
in 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 herself and how she posed in front of my camera and how I captured her sort of a softer golden light and just those um, hanging curtain backdrops. I think that was a real insistence on a new type of image that you just didn't see often on the cover of Vogue. I mean, how was the collaboration with her on that? She's wonderful to collaborate with, you know, and it's an honor to have worked with her on that. She truly is. She's deeply collaborative. That's what I mean. I mean, she she is. And she's so, when she gives herself to a partnership, she really does sort of give herself fully to to that creative partnership. But I can only imagine, man, like you were a kid when you did that. Yeah, for sure. But I was, you know, and I kind of went into it thinking I'm going to do this assignment, how I would photograph a friend, you know, because that's what I know. And if that's what I've been asked to do, then I'm going to do what I know. I should mention that that photo is now hanging in the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they acquired it for their collection. I don't know if it's currently hanging, but maybe sometime soon. How aware were you at the time that this might be a historic image? Um. Very aware, but also very comfortable in the fact that I was just trying to make uh, the best images I could. You know, that was the first and foremost focus. We've talked a little bit about your sense of purpose as a photographer, the the idea of creating a body of images where Black people are seen as, um, I mean, I've read, I've read you say these words, free, expressive, effortless, and sensitive. Mm. I'm curious about the impact of images like that. Like what changes when images like that become the norm? rather than the exception? Yeah, I mean, in a weird way, I think they are, which is really great. I think they are becoming a sort of a norm, which is really, really great to see, you know? I think that's the idea of making something or insisting that something should be the norm, but I'm seeing a lot more work in which that is the norm. So I think it's great. Um, I think what it does is hopefully encourage, you know, because images are propositions in a way, when you see one and you feel comfortable in it and you see a reflection of how you are or how you wish to be, you know, I hope that uh, it sort of brings about a generation that of just, you know, black youth, essentially, that are more comfortable in themselves, whatever that means for the personal journey, if that makes sense. How about your own journey? Like, what do you hope the next 10 years has in story for you? I think I'm really interested in a continuum of making more work. You know, I think like any photographer, I'm constantly making images, constantly curious, um, interested in telling new stories about constructs of blackness that concern my generation and, you know, whatever that may mean in that current emotional moment for me is what I'm interested in. Is there one thing you know now that you wish you knew back when you started taking photos? No, I think everything I've learned along the way has been the valuable stuff. You know, if there was, if I, if I knew more or knew less, it wouldn't turn out the way it has so far. And I'm very happy with, with where things are and, and hopefully with where things continue to go. That's a beautiful answer. Hey, lo- lovely to meet you. You too. Thank you, Tom. Still a jam. Beyonce, irreplaceable. Before that, my conversation with Tyler Mitchell. Five years ago, Tyler became the first black photographer to shoot the cover of Vogue magazine. He photographed Beyonce for its cover. And some of his work is on display right now at the Contact Photography Festival in Toronto. If you are listening to this in Toronto and you want to walk around, say, like, King Street West, I know I know if you're not listening in Toronto, I know if you're listening in St. John's, you're like, Tom give it up about King Street West. But seriously, if you walk around King Street, his photographs are everywhere and they're absolutely stunning. 
It's impossible to imagine the pain and grief in the city of Uvalde, Texas this week. Days after a gunman shot and killed 19 children and two teachers at an elementary school, words are still hard to come by for any of us. You're starting to see some artists uh, start to speak out, including um, Matthew McConaughey, who's an Oscar-winning actor, who's actually from Uvalde in Texas. And it's worth mentioning his statement because it was, it was pretty powerful. It was pretty emotional. He called mass shootings in the U.S. a, quote, epidemic we can control and said, we cannot exhale once again, make excuses and accept these tragic realities as the status quo. As I mentioned again, Matthew McConaughey from Uvalde, Texas. The country singer Mickey Guyton also spoke out. Uh, she's from Arlington, Texas, and she wrote on Twitter, there are no words, I'm broken and terrified. And then the pop singer and actress Selena Gomez goes on and, and, and starts sharing her grief. So Selena Gomez is from Grand Prairie in Texas, and she writes, if children aren't safe in school, where are they safe? It's hard not to be um, glued to the coverage of this thing. And as I mentioned yesterday, it's hard not to be glued to the coverage and also feel the need to, to look away sometimes. Um, again, I'll, I'll highlight the work of my colleagues at CBC News who are doing some really powerful and challenging and um, quite empathetic reporting on this story. CBCnews.ca to find their coverage. Let's play some music right now. This is Edwin Raphael from Montreal. The song is called Have You Been Told? Edwin's going to be playing at the Oceaga Festival in Montreal at the end of July. So if you're in Montreal, head on out. Here it is. Everything on this island feels overgrown now. Trees and the roots and shrubs all blown up now. Out of Montreal, that is Edwin Raphael with Have You Been Told. Edwin's next show is at the Oceaga Festival. That's happening at the end of July. Margaret Atwood has had her novels adapted into films, TV shows, even operas. Her most famous story is returning as a ballet. The Handmaid's Tale is returning to stages this fall with Canada's Royal Winnipeg Ballet. It reminded us of the last time we spoke with Margaret Atwood. It was in 2020 when she released a poetry collection called Dearly, a collection of poems that take a look at big metaphysical stuff, absences, endings, aging, all of the retrospection that comes along with that. But it also wouldn't be a Margaret Atwood book if things didn't get a little bizarre, right? It also features werewolves, zombies, and sirens. This is one of our favorite conversations we've ever had on Q, uh, certainly one of my favorite conversations, and I, I wanted to revisit it here. Uh, mine and Margaret's conversation started when I asked her what caused her in the first place to pursue poetry. Oh, I don't think it was a it was a choice. It was just something that happened to me when I was in high school. Um, so up until that time, I had had various career choices that I was going to be. I was going to be a painter, and then I wasn't going to be a painter anymore. I was going to be um, 
a designer, and then I wasn't going to be that anymore. I was going to be a home economist, and then I was going to be a biologist, uh, and then I started writing. Happened to you makes it sound like divine intervention. Uh, well, I don't uh, think that it was. Uh, I think it was just um, a lot of kids write poetry in high school. Did, you did do, they not? I bet you did. I sure. Oh, I, you, I wrote bad song lyrics in high school. Yeah, well, I wrote bad poetry. So sort of the same idea. When did you When did you realize you might be half decent at it? When When I, I might be half decent? Yeah, at poetry. Uh, well, you have to believe you're half decent at the beginning, or else you wouldn't keep on doing it. Uh, but when you go back and look at what you're actually writing, you realize this was pretty juvenile. But why would it not be when you were 16? Um, so I don't think I wrote anything that I would really stand behind now until I was about 25. Does it give you something? Does it crystallize your thoughts? Does it give you some therapeutic feelings? What does it do to you? Uh, I never really think about that. I, I think it's something that human beings have always done, as far as we know. Uh, it's an offshoot of language and probably closer in the brain to music than novels are. So I just considered that I'm exercising one of my uh, capabilities as a human being. Is it a cathartic feeling when you're done, when you put the final period on the on the end of the poem? No. No? Uh, no, not particularly. I, I'm, I don't think that's why, I'm, it might, maybe why some people do it, but it is a mystery, Tom, and we will never get to the end of it because unfortunately we can't wire up poets' brains when they're writing poems, because we never know when they're going to do it. So I would like to be able to wire them up, and then I could say definitively, uh, well, it's this part of the brain, and it's kicked off by, you know, too many hamburgers, or uh, <laughs> too many beers, or something like that. But alas, we can't do that. This collection of poetry, dearly, uh, let's talk about writing it. Was it was it something that in the past tense you looked back on these poems and said, oh, I'm going to put these together. These are just poems that I've written during this time. Was there a thread when you looked back? Was there a thread when you started writing them? You know, I think it's a question of things accumulating. So they accumulate over a period of time. And when they've accumulated enough, you either have to throw them all out or do something with them. There's something else, though. Like, I, 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 it's nice to read them. And I, I read them as you reflecting over parts of your own life, um, reflecting on things that you're curious about, about high school health class, about your family, about life after the war, about having access to coconuts. Um, I wanted to talk about Blizzard, the one poem in particular that, that kind of struck me. Well, a couple of really struck me. And it's, it's one about your mom. You know, you're, you're kind of watching your, your mother sleep. Could you tell me a well, little bit about that very, poem? Well, she was very, very old. Yeah. Um, so she lived until 97, mm. and um, the last couple of years she was really pretty in bed all the time. And um, that's just what it is. It's a poem about watching my mother sleeping. And what is she doing in her sleep life? What was her name? Her name was Margaret, just like mine. You're Margaret Jr.? No, not exactly. I'm Margaret Eleanor. Oh. It was Margaret Dorothy. Tell me something about your mom. Oh, she was very athletic in her uh, in her life up until she was basically ninety. 
um, and she was a, an early speed skater. She was a horseback rider. She was from rural Nova Scotia. She uh, became a great canoeist when she was married to my dad. And she was an all-around outdoors person. She much preferred being outdoors to being indoors. I could tell how much she mean, means to you and meant to you. I mean, the last line of the poem is, both dark and light like the snow, why can't I let her go? Why can't I let her go? It's You, you can tell how, how much she meant to you there. Oh, yeah, she was great. As an, as anybody who knew her will will tell you, did you write that in the moment when you were when you were watching her sleep and you? No, of course not. Well, I didn't know. I didn't know if you had stepped away and wrote down a quick poem. <laughs> I'm writing a poem right now about you, Tom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even as we speak. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen. I don't know what rhymes with handsome Newfoundlander, but I'll I'll, I'll get out the rhyming dictionary for you. <laughs> well, we could go into what rhymes with powers. Yeah. Well, flowers, showers. Hours and hours. My guess is glowers at this moment. Um, <laughs> there's a line in your poem, Dearly, that really stuck with me. Um, I make my way along the sidewalk mindfully because of my wrecked knees, about which I give less of a shit. Uh, you seem very at peace with getting older there. You know, where does that come from? Have you always been like that? Is it something you had to work at? Is it something that happened naturally? Uh, well, I'd wait for it, Tom. Um, how old are you? 33. Oh, such a baby. So cute. <laughs> the poem writes itself. <laughs> I could be your grandma. Um, <laughs> so I wouldn't worry about that too much right now if I were you. You will have lots of time to think about it later. Uh, but I feel like when we're young, we're more preoccupied with it than we are when we probably well, should be. Well, when we're young, we're looking from the outside. So I wrote a story when I was in high school or early college about a really, 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 really old, past it, withered, dried up, uh, no hope person. And how old was she? I bet she was 40. Exactly. She was exactly 40, which I thought at that time was just the end. So when you were 30, you probably thought, my youth. It is gone. But guess what? You were wrong. I wonder why we have existential crises when we're in our 30s and not when we're in our 70s and 80s. Uh, Well, there's more to have an existential crisis about. So when you're in your 70s and 80s, you you more or less know the plot. Uh, You know what you've done. You know what you haven't done. And when you're in your 30s, there's a lot of uh, time in your head that has not yet been filled. So it's time is more of a challenge for you. What am I going to put into this time? What shall I accomplish? Will I ever accomplish anything? Will I, will I waste my time? Will I uh, run out of it? Um, how old am I actually anyway? Am I young or old? So you have all those thoughts, but you've made it past 32, which is the really difficult year. But isn't this the year that Christ died? Exactly. That's why we call it the crucifixion year. So after this, it's Claire Salem. Uh, not exactly, but um, but at least you've made it past 32. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Margaret Atwood. Her new collection of poems is called Dearly, and it's out everywhere now. I got to speak to Billy Collins the other day. Do you know Billy? Yeah. Great poet. poet uh, former poet laureate of the United States. And he, what's he up to? Oh, not much. 
He's what, uh, <laughs> what a thing to say. <laughs> he's, I hope he's not listening. <laughs> he, like you, is releasing a collection of poems. And I asked him the same question I asked you. I said, "Are you? is there anything that binds these together? And, and like yourself, he said, no, not really. And I said, well, what do you think about poetry coming out right now? Do you think it's a good time for poetry during the pandemic and we're all stuck at home? And he said, I like to think that during the pandemic, life has slowed down to the speed of poetry. Oh, how hopeful. Of course, he is generally an optimistic type of poet. What do you make of that, though? Do you think poetry can offer us something specifically during this time? Uh, I don't know about specifically during this time, but you'll notice that at weddings and funerals, people don't don't read long chapters out of novels. They read poems uh, because they are condensed. um, They're condensed... Uh, little nuggets of language, and they don't necessarily depend on plot. And they can also transmit an idea in only two or three lines. Well, I think that's kind of a misconception. Um, We used to be taught poetry that way in high school, that that the poet had taken this idea and stuffed it into this sonnet. And which just made you think, well, why did they bother? You know, if it was an idea, why couldn't they just blurted out. Why does it have to be, why does it have to rhyme? I remember going to school and, and uh, doing a, you know, I was given a, you know, an assignment of doing an essay about a poem, about what a poem was about. And I wrote it and I got like a low mark on it. Not because was it was... Was that the one about a fruit? I think it was, it might've been the old Grecian urn. Oh, the Grecian urn. And, um, and uh, I got it wrong and they were like, no, because that's not what it was about. What was it about? I can't remember. But either way... I think it was about this guy chasing a lot of girls. Maybe so. I can't remember the poem. And you probably poem. said that and, and got marked down for it. But even then, like, I felt like it, I could be given a poem that was about, like, oh, look at, this, look at this nice flower. And I'd say, oh, yeah, this is a poem about a flower. And they go, oh, no, no, no. This is a poem. This is about birth and death. And I would go, well, well, how, how in the name of God do you know? it about a flower to begin with, there wouldn't be a poem. What do you mean? What do I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I understand what you mean. I know what you mean. But okay. I feel like when we're in school, we are taught to uh, rely too much on simile and metaphor. And we're, to, and- we're, we're taught that there's a meaning that is like, do you remember um, Cracker Jack? Like the- it was candy corn and there was always a prize in the box. Yeah. Okay. So we're taught that po- poetry is like that, that it's a, it's a box full of Cracker Jack and there's a prize in there somewhere. You have to dig it out. But that isn't how I think of poetry. How do you think of it? It's the experience of the poem itself. So you're following somebody's thought process. So when you read a poem, you just try to take it in, face value, and try to think about what they're thinking about at the time. You got it. That's pretty good. I mean, I remember when I first moved up here and I started looking at painting and I went, I don't get it. And they said to me, well, you don't have to get it. You just have to figure out how you feel when you look at it. Oh, who told you that? My buddy Cora. Good. Good for Cora. Yeah, she's a smart one. Um, well, there, there may be no it to get. There may be a lot of it. Yeah, I know. I, sometimes I feel like I'm pretty messed up from looking for the prize at the bottom of the Cracker Jack box, you know? Well, maybe there isn't one. Yeah, isn't that, isn't that hopeful? Uh, the thing I... Well, isn't, well you're probably, you would probably be very annoyed. I mean, I've been looking for the Cracker Jack prize all these years and there isn't one. <laughs> yeah, but perhaps the gift, the true prize, is looking for it. You got it. That's a very... 
snazzy way of thinking about it. You just had a thought, Tom. You know, first time for everything. Uh, <laughs> Dearly is out everywhere today as um, you know, I was I was reading a bunch of articles about you again coming to talk to you, which of course I always look forward to do. And you know, one of the lines I, I saw is you know one of the most successful writers in Canadian history, potentially the most successful poet in Canadian history. And I thought to myself, I don't even really know what success is because, like you say earlier, success is relative. It's not something that can yeah, be de- defined, right? You can't say, oh, yeah. this person is a success or this isn't a success. But I am curious when it comes to you. When it comes to your life, and I think there is an answer for this. When you think about the word success and how it applies to your own life, what is success to you? Oh boy! Uh, well, none of us in the in the coffee house days set out to be a commercial success because we didn't think that existed. So we set out to be um, good writers on the terms of the writing. That was our ambition. Uh, but of course, nothing is ever perfect, so you never actually achieve that ambition, which is possibly, Tom, why you keep doing it. Mm. Maybe next time will be better. So is, or maybe it won't. You do not know. Right. So is, is success the quest to, to I would, do good I work? Would, for, for me, it is, because, because there is no it. There isn't any the success. So what would you... What would that consist of if you're not interested in big, shiny material objects? That's a lovely feeling. I think I think a lot of us who are standing outside of that world, we think at one point you write the thing, the Grecian urn, you you slap well, your hands and work, you go. That did not work out very well for Keats. No, he didn't do he didn't do well after that. He died young. I'll see. Well, of he, tuberculosis of the brain. Well, at least he got the Grecian urn out of it. Well, he. Other people got the Grecian urn out of it, but but he did not experience success during his lifetime. What's a Grecian urn? What? What's a Grecian urn? You're asking me what a Grecian urn is? No, I'll tell you what it is. About five bucks an hour. (laughs) Oh, stop. (laughs) That's really bad. Where did you learn that? Was that in high school? Did you pick that up in high school? Before we go, your uh, your book title "Dearly" comes from a poem in the book that mentions words that aren't often used anymore. So, last question: mm. Is there another word that you think doesn't get used often enough that we should bring back? Oh, there are so many words that are not used very much, um, but I'm not sure you would necessarily bring them back because they're usually words for, um, but uh, for jobs that have become obsolete. Like like wheelwright. How many wheelwrights do you know? Milkman. There aren't any milkmen anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, farrier. There still are some farriers, but not a lot of them. Um, yeah. So a lot of them come into that that category or the or the category of object. But is there is there a word that doesn't describe an occupation like a parlance word like that like you know like dear I think mine is is a phrase that I, I love to use that doesn't get used anymore which is you know for to make you know like or oh, yeah. you know like oh I got I got some lemons out for to make some lemonade. Yes, well the for to location you find a lot in 19th century folk songs. Um and sea shanties and ballads and things like that. Um I was going to London for to meet so and so. Yes, you, that is a good example. I love any, that. Any any ones like that for you? Oh well, a lot of them are are um, 
things that were substitutes for actual swear words that people don't use anymore because they use the actual swear words a lot more than they used to, Tom. I've heard that before. So nobody says jumping Jehoshaphat uh, <laughs> anymore, do they? My, my, uh, I, think my mom, I think my mom actually still says jumping Jehoshaphat. Well, there you go. And she probably says, hail Columbia. <laughs> what was that a euphemism for? It's a euphemism for H-E-L-L, which people didn't use to pronounce. Well, uh, I've had a hail Columbia of a time talking to you, Margaret. Thanks for your time. We, we could say fuddle-duddle. Oh, then we'd be you like, know who said that. Well, I certainly do, the, uh, the father of the current prime minister. That's correct. I'm not sure whether he himself actually ever said it, but I think journalists put it in there because they couldn't say what he actually did say. My mother also says, not on your tintype. Did you ever hear that before? Um, no, but I've heard not on your Nelly. Oh, I like, oh, that's pretty good. You heard that? No, I haven't heard that before. I that's... don't know what it means. What is your Nelly? I do not know. But anyway, we could go on about that for some time. I think we did. I think we did, too. <laughs> Tom Powers rhymes with hours and hours. <laughs> <laughs> Margaret Atwood, thank you so much. Thank you. My conversation with Margaret Atwood back when she released her poetry collection, Dearly. This week, Margaret Atwood made news again. Margaret has teamed up with Penguin Random House to release a quote, unburnable edition of The Handmaid's Tale. The book is printed on fireproof materials, and it's designed to raise awareness of the growing number of book burnings in bands and schools and libraries. Proceeds from its auction will go to Penn, which is an association that advocates for free expression all around the world. Uh, if you want to go to our Twitter, at CBC Radio Q, you can watch the video of Margaret, a book, and a blowtorch. All right, so check this out. Today, after 19 seasons, The Ellen DeGeneres Show will air its last ever episode. This is what it sounded like when it all began. It's, uh, it's September 8th. This is our very, very first show, and you are my very first audience. Ellen DeGeneres from the show's first ever episode from 2003. Now, as you probably know, Ellen has faced a fair bit of controversy, especially over the last couple of years. In 2020, BuzzFeed News reported on allegations that the show had become a toxic workplace. Staffers cited experiences of racism, intimidation, sexual misconduct. Ellen DeGeneres apologized, and three top executives were let go. Last year, she announced this season would be her last, but said that the decision has nothing to do with the controversy and that she, quote, needed a new challenge. In recent weeks, lots of folks have come on the show to say goodbye to Ellen, including the actor Kate McKinnon. Uh, Kate McKinnon, in this clip right now, reads an imagined letter from her 13-year-old self to Ellen. And just for some context here, after Ellen came out in 1997, she becomes this gay icon and a role model for kids like Kate. Dear Mrs. DeGeneres, <laughs> my name is Kate. I'm from Long Island. It's come to my attention that I am gay as hell. <laughs> no one else is gay for 200,000 miles. So it's nice to know that you exist. I bet if I ever met you, I would act so weird. So I hope I never do. <laughs> Thank you for being so funny and such an inspiration and making me feel less alone. P.S. My iguana isn't eating. What do I do? <laughs> Kate McKinnon, now formally as of last week from Saturday Night Live on The Ellen DeGeneres Show. The final episode of The Ellen DeGeneres Show airs today. That is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, my conversation with Selma Blair. We'll see you then.
later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.